Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino. I'm joined here today by the star of this show. This is On the Record with Jerry Chupiano, joined by Jerry Chupiano here. We've got a great guest again today. And before we turn it over to Jerry and his guest, just want to thank our audience. 53,000 and climbing right now, faithful subscribers from 74 countries, grassroots MLB front offices. We appreciate your support. Getting us on iHeartRadio. It's a great coup for the network. And make sure after the show, give Jerry five stars, write some nice comments, because we battle the analytics of the podcast world just like they do in Major League Baseball. So help us out there. Let iHeartRadio know that they made the right choice, giving us this opportunity. Uh, So with that, Jerry, I'll turn it over to you. Thank you, Dave. And hello again, everybody. And uh, those who have, uh, all 12 of them who have followed me for my career, know that uh, my mentor was a Hall of Fame broadcaster by the name of Jack Buck, one of the great broadcasters of all time. And when I got into Major League Baseball, one of the things Jack told me, he says, Troop, you're going to meet some great people, some very likable people in this game. And right at the top of the list is uh, the gentleman with us today, former Angels general manager, former Red Sox general manager, Mike Port. Mike, how are you? Very well, Jerry. Thanks for having me on. Hey, what are you doing these days? Uh, just uh, keeping in touch with the game from afar, not on any firsthand basis, but from a safe distance. Yeah. When, when I when I mentioned what, what Jack told me about the people in the game, I, I, I found that to be true. And I, I, your, your career expand, spanned how many how many years? Uh, somewhere in excess of 40. Yeah. Uh, don't be shy about those years, though. It's uh, it's it's quite it's quite something to be in the game of baseball for that long. And, and did did you have did young Mike Port have somebody that uh, was a mentor to him in those days? Well, in the early days, I did. Uh, I was fortunate, uh, having been raised in northern San Diego County, Jerry. When the Dodgers moved to Los Angeles, uh, Duke Snyder chose Fallbrook, California, to be his full-time residence and small town that it was. I met Duke. Uh, I was interested in baseball prior to that, but for a number of years, uh, Duke uh, did so many things to help me get my career underway. Yeah. And and he got into scouting, right? Uh, He did. Uh, He was a scout for the Padres, uh, the original San Diego Padres, when they first got their major league franchise. And uh, I was one of the uh, first players that he signed, uh, I must mention that when he signed me, he got me a signing bonus of $1,000. And realizing that uh, the great Dodger general manager, Buzzy Bavese, was then the president of the Padres, uh, Duke told me, I'm giving you your bonus check, but if you are smart, you will cash this check before Buzzy sees you play. And that was, uh, in hindsight, that was an apt description of my playing ability. Yeah. This generation, you know, we, we see uh, videos of, of Mickey Mantle. We see videos of, of Willie Mays. I don't, this generation doesn't know how, how good Duke Snyder was as a player himself. Uh, he was a great player, obviously a Hall of Famer, but uh, the proverbial five-tool player, did encounter some knee problems, and certainly, Jerry, when they uh, the Dodgers moved to the Los Angeles Coliseum and uh, and uh, right field there was virtually in the next county, uh, 
that, that put a damper on uh, on some of Duke's power output, but uh, an extremely talented player, uh, hit, run, throw, field, hit with power, and uh, a member of those great Dodger teams, and still holds a, a number of offensive records. Yeah, the, the great Don Meredith, when he used to be on Monday Night Football, used to say, if ifs and buts were candy and nuts, we'd all have a Merry Christmas. And if the ifs and buts went back to that era, people like Duke Snyder and others who, who had those knee injuries, if we had the sports medicine back then that we have now, what what uh, careers they would have had. Even, even more prolific numbers than they already have, which are Hall of Fame numbers, as you mentioned. Well, I read something the other day that I found interesting, which was that uh, when Mickey Mantle had knee surgery, must have been back in the 50s, and it was the usual cartilage meniscus type of uh, procedure, and uh, he was operated on by the great Dr. Sidney Gaynor, the Yankees physician, but at the time, recovering from that procedure, he was in the hospital for a week. Uh, now, for the most part, as you know, that particular procedure, uh, procedure is done, uh, as I understand it, on an outpatient basis, and they have you up and moving, uh, you know, right away and back in action in a very, very short time. Perhaps even as little as less than a week. Wow! Yeah, it's it's amazing the the strides we've made in in, in orthopedic surgery. All right, so so Mike Port, the ball player, uh, did Buzzy eventually get Buzzy Buzzy get a look at you and change the path of your career? Well, it's uh, it's interesting, Jerry, because uh, the the first contact that I had with Buzzy Bavese, and if I may digress for a moment, for those who may not be familiar with uh, Buzzy's credentials, uh, when he was with the Dodgers uh, and in the overall, uh, he accomplished eight National League pennants, four World Series championships. When he moved to the Angels, uh, two American League Division championships, uh, was a moving force in the establishment of Major League Baseball in San Diego, uh, and also in within the integration of baseball, he played a, a key part, uh, just uh, certainly deserving of Hall of Fame acknowledgement. Uh, it's uh, a continuing aggravation to me that people have not yet seen fit to induct somebody with those kind of credentials. But that said, I was certainly aware of him when he was the general manager of the Los Angeles Dodgers. And it was uh, in about the fall of 1968 that, thanks to Duke Snyder, I came over here, being in Arizona, where I am now, to the Arizona Instructional League team and spent two weeks with the Dodgers Instructional League club. Uh, other members of that club were Teddy Sizemore and, uh, and Bill Russell and Billy Grabarkowitz and some of the Dodgers uh, that went on to be major league players. Uh, uh, and key parts in their future efforts. But when I went to leave, uh, I checked out of the hotel and was ready to pay my bill. And the lady there said, uh, nope, uh, all the charges have been taken care of by Mr. Bavese. Now, I had never met Buzzy. Uh, I did not even know that Buzzy knew who I was. But uh, it's certainly a gesture that I have never forgotten. And the irony is that when I got home, as was the custom in those days. Uh, I wrote a thank you note to Buzzy for his generosity, and I received a letter back that uh, I still find very interesting. Again, never having met him, but he having paid the bill, uh, he said, uh, perhaps someday we will meet and discuss our hobby, baseball. 
that was uh, two to three years before I ever met him firsthand. Subsequently, uh, and thanks to him having a strong hand in my career, I wound up working for him for the better part of 20 years. There, there's there's the hook when we started this conversation about the, the good people in this game. There was one right there. So uh, that underlined what I, what I said earlier. And uh, uh, I'm, I'm glad you highlighted some of his his uh, career marks because, yeah, those those things uh, he accomplished, I think they're Hall of Fame worthy. Do you do you think that we, we need to have somebody as an advocate for a Buzzy Bavese to, to, to get those types into the Hall of Fame? I'm sure there are others. Oh, indeed, there are others. And, uh, you know, I, I saw the other day that uh, I do not know who the members of the current era committee uh, you know, are, but I saw just the other day a new listing that uh, eight people, and deserved, I'm sure, uh, uh, were nominated for election to the Hall of Fame by that particular era committee. Uh, one of them uh, struck my interest, which was Ed Montague, uh, the great National League umpire, uh, whose father, by the way, was the scout who had signed Willie Mays. But uh, I was privileged to get to know Eddie when I got to work with the umpires, but it sparked a thought in my mind, as great an umpire as Ed Montague was, what about Bruce Freming? Uh, Joe West was also on the list, and deservedly so. Uh, But, uh, you know, maybe they have limits on some things, but uh, I always find it interesting, Jerry, that uh, the National Football League uh, seems to find plenty of people to induct, but Major League Baseball... Uh, should be a difficult place to get into, but I think when you only have one or two entrants in a particular year, I think it uh, sort of casts a pall on the whole event. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned Ed Montague, and I failed to mention when I talked about your background with the Angels and, and the Red Sox. I should have mentioned that you uh, worked at the major league level office and were in charge of the umpires, and we'll get to that in a few minutes, but let's let's jump quickly into the transition from Mike Port, the hopeful baseball player, uh, into Mike Port, who uh, put on a coat and tie and became somebody in the front office. How'd that happen? Well, I was, uh, as mentioned, one of the original Major League San Diego Padre players. Uh, Started out with the Major League Club uh, in spring training in Yuma, Arizona. Uh, had an arm injury, but in those days, uh, you didn't say too much. It was sort of what we refer to as the Wally Pip syndrome. Uh, some people might remember that Wally Pip came out of the lineup one day because of a problem, and Lou Gehrig con- uh, succeeded him and went on to play several thousand games. You never saw nor heard from Wally Pip again. So in those days, as you know, competition was fierce, and unless you had a severely debilitating injury. You stayed on the field. Uh, I went from uh, Yuma uh, to Leesburg, Florida, the site of the Padres then minor league camp, Uh, wound up getting released as a player, Uh, returned to my home area of San Diego County, and for a week I made the rounds uh, of uh, real estate possibilities, banking possibilities, brokerage house possibilities, really didn't know what I wanted to do because my lifelong aspiration had been to play baseball. 
another person that was key in my career was Peter Bavese, who was then the minor league director of the new San Diego Padres. And coincidentally, Peter, having been the man who released me as a player, uh, called me a week later and asked me if I would be interested in returning to Key West, Florida as the general manager of that club. Uh, and it was a way for me to stay in baseball. It was baseball. And by whatever possessed me, Harry, I threw myself into that uh, as uh, wholeheartedly as I had uh, in my efforts in trying to play. So I went back down to Key West, where the manager was Don Zimmer, and spent a summer really learning the game of baseball, thanks to Zimmer. This may be an unfair question, but... What do you think they saw in you to put you in a position at one of their minor league clubs as the general manager? I will tell you what Peter once told me, and that was that I was only one of a few people in the system at that time who had a driver's license and, and could read. Uh, we had quite a bunch in those early days, uh, but uh, I, think, uh, uh, I think Peter had gotten to know me a little bit during my time in the minor league camp, uh, he knew that uh, I had a college education for what that was worth. Little did he know that my time in college was really spent in terms of a vicious circle because the only way I could continue playing baseball was to have gone to college. The only way I could stay eligible was to get decent grades, and, but everything to me was totally baseball. And by whatever possessed me, once the front office side started, uh, I became, again, as fascinated with that as I had been with playing. Where did you go to school? Uh, California Western University in San Diego, uh, of which I have taken note that since I left there, they have changed their name at least two to three times. What is it now? Uh, I think it's gone to United States International University and then something else. Uh, it's, as, it's as if they are trying to shake any memory of my having attended there. It seems like we circle back uh, to, the, to the point about people in the game. And you mentioned learning baseball from Don Zimmer, a, a, a legendary figure uh, for those of us who have been around the game for a long time. But we sort of miss those guys now. The the Don Zimmers, the Jimmy Reeses, the Johnny Peskies, the baseball lifers. Those guys, when I say baseball lifers, they were really like George Kissel, the lifeblood of the game. They they gave it everything they had. They loved the game. It was their life. I don't know if we're going to see those guys anymore. That's sad. Uh, very much so. I totally concur, Barry, because that is a different kind of baseball education. Uh, I realize that there are fine college programs in this day and age. Uh, I realize that there's a lot of literature available. I realize there's a lot of uh, instruction on various levels privately available. But in my judgment, you will never replace the, uh, the type of people that the old baseball instructors were. Uh, Preston Gomez, uh, and you mentioned Jimmy Reese, and uh, and. Doug Rader and Gene Mock and, uh, you know, so many of the people that I had the privilege of working with who knew the game from having participated in the game professionally and at the major league level. And I think a lot of their knowledge was imbued by the fact that they played the game 
154 games a year, 140 in the minor leagues and 154 at the major league level. Uh, not objectively, not a college situation where you play fewer times per week. And the competition, I think, is something else that entered into it. Uh, they, they were genteel enough off the field, but when you set foot on the field, there was respect for the game, uh, and you were there to beat your opponent in terms of winning the game. Uh, for so many, many years, they had rules, which I believe are still on the books for that matter, about fraternization. Uh, but now, when you go to a major league park, to me, it's uh, kind of a sad connotation. Glad people are on good terms, but to see people jog to center field from opposite directions and and the hugging and the uh, uh, it does something to diminish the spirit of competition, in my opinion. And when you talk about players from that era, it's the Wally Pip syndrome. If you're not if you're not playing, they're not gonna they're not gonna just have you hang around. And there's people those those clubs had uh, multiple minor league teams with people waiting to to get to the big time. Absolutely, as you probably recall, back around 1950, 1960, I think the Dodgers had 28 minor league teams. Uh, now, I happened to look yesterday. Now, major league clubs have four affiliate teams, and uh, you know that uh, uh, there's an old Branch Rickey adage that uh, quality does not necessarily come out of quantity but you need the quantity of players to get the quality. And he viewed baseball development as being pyramid-shaped, broad-based at the bottom where a lot of players would come into it. And given the element of competition, the best players would rise to the top. His further adage, I once read, was that out of the many in that pyramid come the few who make it to the major leagues. Now, with the reduction in minor league clubs and the limitation of the rounds on the, uh, the scholastic draft, uh, somebody is apparently of the opinion that out of the few come the many. And I'm just unable to uh, envision how it's going to work that way. The game will still be played, but the quality of the game for those who, are, who know, uh, who have had professional experience, who have been around, uh, I've heard many, many comments that the quality of play is certainly not what it once was. Yeah. Now, what, what about your trek that eventually got you to the major leagues? You, you go from being with Don Zimmer down in Florida. How do you how do you climb the ladder, and what jobs did you have along the way? Uh, after my first year as the general manager of the Key West Padres. My next two years were spent uh, in Lodi, California, uh, in the Texas League as the, excuse me, in the California League as the general manager of that club. And then I uh, received an opportunity to go to San Diego as the director of sales and marketing, uh, where I spent a year. Uh, and then with changes that took place in San Diego, uh, primed primarily by the, the passing of the then general manager for the Padres, Eddie Leishman, a very, very fine gentleman and uh, who had been the general manager of the Pacific Coast League Padres. But Eddie was a, a great man, a good friend. Uh, when he passed away, Peter Bavese became the general manager and I became the minor league director. 
How about uh, your ability or, or anybody's ability as a minor league director in judging players? That's a big part of it, is it not? Well, I think that uh, I, again, was trained by Buzzy Bavese, and one of Buzzy's premier adages was always try to hire people smarter than you are and let them do their job. And that is exactly how I tried to proceed. I was, again, blessed and privileged to work with Bob Fontaine Sr., uh, who had been a Pittsburgh organization player uh, who came from the Branch Rickey days, was an outstanding scout at that point. And admittedly, I, I just followed Bob's lead and whatever he would recommend or suggest, that was the learning curve for me. Uh, I realized that, uh, you know, uh, ears open, mouth shut, and I would be much better off given the company that I had. And how did you get to the Angels? Uh, after about, uh, oh, eight years with the Padres, uh, Buzzy was going to retire. And after a very brief retirement, Gene Autry asked him to come to the Angels and help them straighten out their situation there. And again, Fortune smiled upon me and Buzzy asked me to join him with the Angels. And as much as I owed Buzzy, uh, and it was a change of scenery for me, I decided to go along with him and did join the Angels in uh, for the 1978 season. You, you've mentioned Buzzy Bavese uh, several times, and it just, just struck a chord with me. I struck a, a note. In football, we always hear about the coaching tree. This, uh, you know, Paul Brown's coaching tree or, or this Bill Walsh's coaching tree. What about baseball? Who, who, who could you pick out who is somebody who had – that tree that developed either front office people or scouts or what have you? Well, again, I would go right back in my mind, Jerry, to Buzzy Bavese, who had contact with 24 men over the course of his career who went on to manage at the major league level. And the other, the other thing about Buzzy was that he had a feeling that people who had given so much to the game uh, should remain in the game. And thus, even though he had never been a Dodger or a Padre, uh, when the great Warren Spahn's wife passed away and Buzzy felt he was sort of drifting aimlessly, Buzzy brought him on board as a minor league pitching coordinator. Uh, Billy Herman was one of our minor league hitting instructors. Preston Gomez was a mainstay as one of our coaches. Uh, and, you know, this was just his feeling about taking care of people in the game. But again, in terms of the coaching tree, uh, 24 people who went on to become major league managers, including uh, Bobby Cox, uh, certainly Preston Gomez, uh, certainly Don Zimmer, certainly uh, Buzzy was the man who saw fit to make Walter Alston the Dodger manager. Uh, the list goes on and on and on. Legendary names. What about, uh, what about, your time with Gene Autry, how was it working for the Cowboy? Uh, quite a privilege and an unbelievable pleasure. Uh, with all due respect to others, greatest owner that I ever encountered because he was a true fan, but never tried to interfere. And, uh, you know, just uh, an eternal optimist, uh, a great patriot. Just as you probably know, this was a man who, among his accomplishments, I believe 
Mr. Autry has seven stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Very well accomplished. Uh, interestingly, as he once told me, uh, and as much success as he enjoyed otherwise, if he had had his druthers, he would have preferred to have been a, a player. Uh, but he did all right in the other in the other pursuits that uh, that he developed. Uh, but uh, a very gentle man, a very nice man, uh, and uh, I must tell you that his way of communicating uh, unpleasant news was rather unique. Uh, after we lost to the Red Sox uh, in 1986, Gene Mock and I were having dinner with Mr. Autry. And Mr. Autry said, you know, I, I love you two like sons. Uh, he said, uh, but I want you to know I really want to try to win next year. And Gene Mock said, well, Mr. Autry said, you know, we're certainly going to try, but things happen, injuries, players sometimes don't perform. We're going to do our best, but uh, you know, we appreciate you love us like sons, but if we don't win, will you still love us? And Mr. Autry said, of course I'll still love you. He said, I will miss you, but, but, but I will still love you. So a man... A man of, uh, you know, well, Mr. Autry, a man of, of great humor, but, uh, you know, terribly adept in sometimes obviously using it to convey what might otherwise be a difficult message. Uh, Gene Mock had the reputation. And again, th this, this was before I, I got into the game. Mock had the reputation as a genius. Was he smarter than most baseball managers or was he, was he, given a lot of good publicity. No, I have to, I have to submit that he was incredibly bright. I remember my first contacts with him were when he was with the Minnesota twins. And we knew that whenever the twins came to play the angels, that we were going to have our hands full because however Gene went about it, he had some capability to make his clubs better than their ability would otherwise indicate. Uh, he knew the game inside out, backward and forward. He knew the rules, he knew the strategies, and the players seemed to respond to him. He had a very solid knack of putting players in the position where they could succeed. Uh, people saw in him a certain intensity on the field, never smiling on the field, and when he would get when he would get uh, irritated, that vein in his neck would begin to show. And I think that uh, uh, that would be an intimidating factor to a number of people. But he was really quite a personable individual, really quite a, a nice man. It was just that he lived baseball, believed in baseball, and was there to win. How many different managers did you have during your tenure as, as a general manager? Uh let me see. We started with the uh, when I reached the uh, uh, when I reached the angel. Well, in my time, uh, I had uh, Gene Mock, uh, then Cookie Rojas, and then Doug Rader uh, for the time that I was with the Angels, uh, approaching seven years. Uh, we just had Gene Mock only left the field because of health concerns, uh, and rather than disrupt our entire coaching staff 
Cookie Rojas, an outstanding baseball man who had done everything, managed in winter ball, former major league player, had scouted and so forth. Uh, Cookie ran the club for a year. And then we uh, moved on to Doug Rader, who gave us a tremendous job in 1989 and stayed with the club for a couple of years after that, after my departure. Doug Rader had this reputation as as a player as kind of being uh, a, a little a little bit wild, a little bit different. But uh, as a manager, he got things done, huh? Oh, very much so. Uh, I would tell you that the man who recommended Doug to me, in spite of his reputation as a player, was Preston Gomez. And Preston told me that uh, after Doug had managed at Texas, he said, I know you're going to hear some things, but this man is a solid baseball man. He will do the right things. And I discovered that Doug Rader was uh, a man of high integrity and incredibly bright, uh, both in terms of baseball and with a variety of interests and other topics as well. But that first year that he had the club, 1989, I believe we had a five or six game lead at the all-star break and were the odds on favorites to win. And then we faded a little bit, but uh, he was uh, well-liked by the players. Uh, opponents respected him. And I just cannot say enough good things about what he did for us as a manager and as a man representing the club. If you were running a club today, what would you look for in, in a manager? How, how, would you, how would you go about that uh, interview? Uh, I think somebody that uh, can relate well to people that summarily stated can put players in the position where they can succeed, not ask more of them, ask for their best effort, but have that intuition where you realize that you're not asking more of them than they can give. And I think that uh, somebody who is honest with them, uh, somebody who has game, knowledge, and strategy and somebody who has basic baseball heart. You you eventually find your way to Boston, where you uh, worked with uh, again one of the great people in the game, the late Lou Gorman. What a, what a guy he was! Oh, I, I had known Lou for a number of years, and uh, I was uh, happily running the Arizona Fall League in its first year here in the Phoenix area, Jerry. When Lou called me and said that the Red Sox were looking for then an assistant general manager, although I would mention that I had pause because they had a wonderful lady uh, already on board there as the assistant general manager, who I knew well, Elaine Weddington-Steward, yes. uh, who is still yes. with the Red Sox, by the way. Uh, and, but uh, I think they needed an extra hand in some respects. And so I was just uh, privileged to be able to work with Lou and also with uh, with John Harrington and Haywood Sullivan, who were overseeing the club at that time. You, you mentioned uh, Haywood Sullivan and John Harrington. We talked about Gene Autry. Ownership today is different, isn't it? The, the owners so. today, yeah. very much so. Uh, again, Mr. Autry, uh, I think uh, there was a time when I think the general ownership perspective was, uh, I will own it, but I'm not going to operate it. Uh, and I've had friends tell me that one of the biggest indications to them that things might ultimately go south is when you have that first introductory press conference of a new owner, and that new owner says, I am a big fan. Uh, that means head for the exits, uh, because 
too many people, in my judgment, think they are the second coming of George Steinbrenner. And there is only one George Steinbrenner. Uh, you need good baseball people. And I liken it to other corporate endeavors. Uh, Jack Welch, when he was a General Electric, did not go to the jet engine plant at Lynn, Massachusetts and tell them how to install the fan blades on the engines. Uh, you can overlook it from 30,000 feet, but uh, now I realize they have significant investments, but I think it is incumbent upon today's owners to hire good people, give them a budget, and then stay out of the way. But that will not get their name on the back pages uh, akin to what, what George had done. And again, I submit there was only one George Steinbrenner. And, and with Steinbrenner, for all the bravado and the thunder and the, the back pages that he was on, there was a Gene Michael behind the scenes who really helped put those Yankee teams that won a number of World Series under Joe Torre as the manager, with Don Zimmer as his bench coach. Gene M Michael did a lot of work in the background. Oh, uh, unbelievable and, and a good friend. Uh, I remember you know, people talk about Moneyball, Jerry, and, and analytics and uh, the advent of on-base percentage. Well, it was back in the 1980s that uh, I was in touch with with uh, Gene Michael Stick, as he is nicknamed, uh, and I was trying to get my hands on a fellow for the Angels by the name of Bernie Williams, and S Stick would not hear of it because he told me that, uh, I remember well, he said, this fellow is going to be too good of an on-base player at the major league level. So, you know, he was a man ahead of his time in, in that regard, but you're right. Uh, as solid an owner as Mr. Steinbrenner was, he had Gene Michael behind him. Uh, Stick had Mr. Steinbrenner's trust, faith and trust. And although there were always some rocky times, perhaps, uh, Stick, by his nature, stuck it out and had so much to do with the uh, composition of those great Yankee teams, let alone the the training of the current general manager, Brian Cashman. And if I may, a word about uh, Mr. Steinbrenner, who, as people know, bombastic in the newspapers and firing managers and coaches and everybody else right, left, and otherwise. But his charitable endeavors in New York City cannot go overlooked. Uh, what he had done for the Silver Shield Foundation, uh, I think it was around 1985, that I read that Mr. Steinbrenner had put 105 and 185 youngsters through college on scholarships. And I'm sure, Jerry, you remember in our days with the Red Sox, Tony Fossus, uh, left-handed pitcher. Tony was one of those individuals that Mr. Steinbrenner has, had put through college. And Tony had never met him. Finally, he did when he was with the Red Sox. But this was the other side of George Steinbrenner that people do not know much about. Uh, lights at Grambling University's baseball field, George Steinbrenner. Uh, just the list goes on and on and on. But it was almost a Jekyll and Hyde thing because, as we know, Billy Martin, fire him, hire him, fire him again, hire him again. Uh, the battles that he would have with Lou Pinella and, and so forth, the, the, the Dave Winfield blowups and et cetera. But then he would go out and the, the widows and children of policemen and firemen and service people, uh, George, could not have been greater with them. I was on the outside uh, as a broadcaster. You were in those meetings. You, you rubbed 
elbows with the owners and, and the commissioner's office and, and the, the inner workings of baseball. I would think that Steinbrenner, obviously, who wanted to win, wanted the Yankees to win more than anything, but had respect for the game and wanted to see the other teams succeed, just a little short of the, of the World Series, but but had an interest, and other owners had more more interest. Maybe I'm being unfair, but, but more more interest in the game of baseball than rather than the business of baseball. Oh, absolutely, and uh, and I was uh, privileged uh, to be in a number of the owners' meetings uh, along with uh, Buzzy Bavese and Mr. Autry. I would tell you because uh, Buzzy had the impression, not from me, but he developed it himself. Buzzy had the impression that I could take shorthand. And he thought I would, and he thought I would be a good note taker to take along to those owners meetings. The truth of the matter, well, the truth of the matter is I just have terribly bad handwriting. Uh, but that said, I would be in some of those owners meetings in the days when you had the, the great attorney, Ed Bennett Williams, uh, owning the, the Orioles, uh, certainly George Steinbrenner, uh, Jerry Reinsdorf and Eddie Einhorn with the, with the White Sox, Walter O'Malley with the Dodgers, John Fetzer with the Tigers, uh, Colonel Bush with the, with the Cardinals, uh, Horace Stone yeah, with the uh, Giants. Uh, I mean, but they had a certain feeling and appreciation for the welfare of the game. Uh, they realized that the leagues were only as strong as their weakest link. And I remember specifically, and especially John Fetzer, who was the owner of the Detroit Tigers, many times would be the calming voice and say, gentlemen, it's not going to help the Detroit Tigers, but we're going to go along with this because it's for the good of the game. Man, if we had that today. All right, so let's Let's uh, jump to your time at the Major League Baseball office uh, in charge of the umpires. Did you jump every time the phone rang? <laughs> no. was going to be <laughs> complaining? I, no, I would. Well, we did. We did get a lot of complaints, but I found that, uh, uh, you know, it's something that Joe West taught me right from the get-go, uh, which was, uh, don't tell me that I missed a call. Tell me why I missed it which is usually where most people stop short. Uh, but it was amazing to me, uh, and I hope that this does not continue. It was amazing to me uh, that how many people, players, managers, and owners who were inclined to call uh, would not know the rules of the game. And you know, once it was explained to them, then perhaps they would adopt a different perspective. But uh, my... Uh, people want to know about my umpiring background knowledge. I really entered into it as a management endeavor. And I owe such a great debt to the major league umpires for, for their patience with me. And for that matter, for having taught me so much, uh, people do not understand that, yes, they miss calls. I call it the Eureka factor. Eureka, umpires miss calls and they miss pitches. However, they do not do so at the same rate that players strike out, miss ground balls, drop fly balls, make base running mistakes, and, and so forth. Uh, I saw something, Jerry, just uh, within the last week that, and it was like a half story, 
somebody wrote that this year, 2023, Major League umpires had missed 21,000 pitches on whatever system these people were using. But again, that's half the story because I was once told that in a Major League season, 2,230 games, somewhere in excess of half a million pitches might be thrown. So when you say 21,000 pitches missed, fine. But if there are 500,000 thrown, or for that matter called, that's still 90-some percent accurate. That's pretty good rate. Yeah. People... you know, don't don't understand the uh, <coughs> excuse me the uh, the training that umpires go through. Uh, I find it sad that with the reduction of the number of minor league clubs, that not only cost one thousand playing jobs and killed the dreams of one thousand people who wanted to be able to say that they played professional baseball at whatever level, but it also cost, in my estimation, about forty umpire training jobs, and. Uh, When I started with the umpires, uh, a gentleman who uh, was the rules expert who had been there for many, many years told me, uh, you will hear at least once every year that the umpiring is worse than ever. And that never failed to be the case. But you're talking about people, let alone their experience at the major league level. Most of those people, by the time they reach the major league level, Jerry, have trained for almost as long, if not as long, as it takes to become a neurosurgeon. They're not just people who walk on the field and decide, I'm going to be an umpire next week. This is a long and arduous training program uh, that continues at the major league level. And as you know from your experience, the problem is something you may learn rule-wise in umpire school, you may not see on the field at the major league level for 20 years. And then in the middle of the World Series, there it is. And if it's one of those naughty situations, you're expected to rule on it within seconds. So uh, these are a special special breed of people, and I'm just of the opinion that they are deserved of uh, more appreciation and acknowledgement than they get. They helped you have a TV career for a while, didn't they? Uh, well, in term in terms of the uh, the rules analyst situation, yeah, yeah uh, Fox. Yes, uh, I did. Uh, oh, it was interesting. I did. I did work for Fox in the postseason of 2016, uh, the Cubs versus Cleveland, and my role was apparently going to be akin to uh, what uh, uh, my my friend uh, Mike Pereira does for the NFL, interpreting rules and plays and so forth. The only thing was that the umpires worked such a clean series that year that I did nothing, no questions whatsoever, uh, for for which I was grateful. But uh, I can certainly see why, given the umpire's performance in that series, that Fox decided to apparently discontinue the uh, the project. Mike, we, we, we could go on for two hours just visiting here. This is, this is among my favorite things to do is, is chatting with you. Thanks for going on the record with us, and I, I appreciate the time, and I hope we can, 
we can do it again. And who knows, maybe we'll resurrect your TV career one of these days. <laughs> well, uh, I am one of those individuals, Jerry, where, as you know, uh, TV voice, radio face. So I think we'd best just leave things where they are. Okay. Mike Port with us. Uh, Dave D'Agostino, take it away. Episode 324 here on the record with Jerry Trupiano. Wonderful interview, Jerry. And, and Mike, you're, you're a gem. We need more of both of you guys in the game right now, the way you approach. Mike, may I ask you a question about Jerry? Certainly. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Um, we're, we're very fortunate to have him here with us. And obviously, we're, I'm excited to have you back on, on the show, on a different show here with our network. But uh, what does a guy like Jerry Trupiano mean to the game of baseball? Well, this is... Jerry is, is symptomatic of the, uh, the greatness of the game. I mean, having worked for a number of clubs, having worked for some great people, uh, and I happen to know if it's an indication that when he left the Boston Red Sox, uh, there was great hue and cry among the Red Sox fans that he was no longer going to be broadcasting there. And in Boston, I would suggest to you there is no higher tribute than to have people rise up like that and uh you know just be unhappy that you're never not going to be around anymore so uh experienced knowledgeable sincere personable uh just you know one of my favorite people and certainly one of baseball's broadcasters that should be back in the game yeah i think we we all agree here and i think with all of our reach out there 74 countries grassroots mlb front offices you got two of the best men that have been in the game here. So hopefully the phones ring because we both, we need you both right now. We do. But uh, Jerry, thanks so much again for uh, always have, uh, I mean, your, your interviews are radical truth, radical transparency. You bring out the best in guests. And Mike, I'll tell you what, uh, you got the driest sense of humor, but you made me laugh about 12 times during the interview. I stayed on mute every time. The Gene Autry quote, I'm going to steal though. I love you still, but I'm going to miss you. I like exactly. that. Exactly. Yep. I'm going to that on my children tomorrow. But uh, <laughs> Thanks again on the network, Real Voices of the Game. Make sure you guys go on iHeartRadio, stream us there. You can get us on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, or Stitcher. Let iHeart know they made the great choice choosing Real Voices of the Game and our newest show, On the Record with Jerry Trupiano, as part of their great podcast lineup here. But uh, welcome. Uh, we'll wish you guys come back next week and give these guys five stars. Thanks again, Jerry. Thanks, Mike. Thank you.